Hi there. My name is Jake Williams. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. Today on the podcast, we have the executive director of the American Public Health Association, Georges Benjamin. I went out and spoke with him at his office in D.C. last week, and we talked about things including what public health will produce in the 21st century. We're coming off a pretty good public health century in the 20th, given that we don't get sick when we eat our food and we don't have polio. So what are we going to do in the 21st? Well, we talk about that, including how we're going to address climate change and how we're going to create a public infrastructure that works for everybody. And Dr. Benjamin also provides a critique of Trump's plan to eradicate AIDS that the president mentioned in his most recent State of the Union. Before we get to that conversation, are you going to go to South by Southwest? Well, we are, and we want you to stop by our booth at the Wellness Expo on March 9th and 10th. It'll be comfy. We'll give you free stuff. We'll be nice to you. So please come by and visit. In the meantime, check out this chat I had with Dr. Benjamin. Here we go. All right. Dr. Georges Benjamin, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here today. So you started out in emergency medicine. You, you are an MD and you came into public health. How did that journey take place? <laughs> I was running the um, Department of Community Medicine and Ambulatory Care at the City Hospital here in Washington, D.C. Um, and my phone rings and the mayor's on the other end of the phone and says, have I got a job for you? Um, one of my good friends and colleagues, a guy named uh, Dr. Reed Tuxin, was had just announced he was leaving as the city's health commissioner. Um, and as the mayor contemplated uh, who he would like to ask to replace him, my name came up. So he called me and asked me to do the job. And from there, you ascended to here, uh, <laughs> which is the uh, you know the main organization for public health in, in America. What led you to continue on the path of public health versus, you know, frankly, probably having a easier, maybe even more lucrative path in medicine? Well, I, I was already on the path of righteousness, you know, <laughs> in many ways. I, I, I enjoyed my time. I was in the Army for nine years. I um, um, really wanted to do something useful. Um, I loved medical administration, health administration. Um, after I left the city health department, I um, really went out and practiced emergency medicine. You know, um, made a fair amount of money, worked a couple of days a week, um, but I was bored with, I mean, I love clinical medicine, but I was just kind of bored with, uh, um, with the, the amount of time I devoted to actually doing what I was doing. And I, so I spent, I filled it in a lot with consulting and some public policy stuff and working with the American College of Emergency Physicians. I chaired their injury trauma committee and I just got into health policy. And then I got to ask to come back to the city, um, this Washington, D.C., to run the ambulance service for a while. Um, and then ultimately went to the state of Maryland um, as the, the first deputy health officer and then the state health officer. And in many ways, um, public health is the label, um, but I kind of view myself as a, a health administrator. Um, the truth of the matter is the health systems that I have run, they're immensely political for, for lots of reasons. In the recent State of the Union address by President Trump, um, he announced a plan to try to eradicate um, HIV and AIDS here in America and beyond. But also, of course, the administration seems to be working at cross purposes with that goal in taking away uh, health insurance for people, limiting access uh, to contraception, continuing stigma. Is this plan 
possible and what's public health role in making it uh, a reality? This plan is well thought through from a technical perspective, from a public health perspective. But, you know, I like to think about health in our policies. And so here's an excellent example of health in our policies. It will fail if they continue with the approach to not ensuring people have, all people have access to health insurance coverage. Uh, if they continue the stigmatization of people who of uh, LGBTQ, um, LGBTQ communities and our friends and neighbors, um, it will fail if they don't um, reverse their course on stigmatizing immigrants and treating people with disdain. Um, it will fail if they don't have a more progressive housing policy. You know, it will fail if the economy doesn't um, begin to close this income gap that we have between the very rich and just about everybody else now. This, when we talk about health in all policies, we, we have to talk about the amazing importance of the social determinants of health. If people don't come in for care, um, I mean, it's depend, depend, this program is very dependent on people getting identified, coming in and getting treatment and being able to afford the medications. So I, I pledge to work with the administration um, where I can work with them. And so here's some place where we are going to work as hard as we can with them on the technical parts of this plan. But no one should be confused that we're not going to go dead set after, after them as well for them to change their racist, misogynistic, and um, unfair rules. Uh, and approaches to those social determinants of health that we view essential and valuable to the dignity uh, and well-being of our communities. Um, you know, it's it's um, the folks in Health, health and Human Services who have thought this through have really thought, I think, taught this through quite well. I was impressed with the depth of thinking about how you target communities and the fact that they're not going to ignore everybody else. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed by at least the, the words that they're going to put new money on the table and not take it from someplace else. Um, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the budget rolls out. And if the funding's inadequate, we're going to go to the Congress and ask the Congress to, yep, great blueprint, but let's fund it right. And we're going to go to Congress, we're going to say, and help us fix these other things that we think are detrimental to their plan. Um, I was around in the early part of the AIDS epidemic. Um, like, like many of the folks of my, of my, uh, my age, my generation. Um, and I've seen us go from um, a disease where uh, you got the diagnosis of, 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 at that time, AIDS, prior to even know about HIV, but AIDS, it was a death sentence. And then we, then we understood there was an infectious phase before you got to AIDS with HIV. Um, and then H, getting, getting HIV, before you got AIDS, you knew that was a, you want to, you want to track to die. Um, and then we got some medications and um, Dr. Garrard, the Assistant Secretary of Health showed a picture of, of someone with a handful of medications. Um, and I remember how sick folks got when they had, to, they took all those medicines, they lived longer, but they got a lot of side effects from the medications. And now with this era of AIDS has now functionally become a chronic disease, one that we can treat. And now the fact that we can actually get viral loads down to such low levels that even if infected, you're not, um, you can't transmit the disease to someone else. 
That's an amazing discovery. Um, we still need a vaccine. And the solution for all this is a vaccine for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, this is really hope for folks. And um, I think the hope of us being able to take those 40,000 um, new cases every year down to just a few thousand, um, and hopefully zero, um, I think we're at a sentinel point in our country. And I we cannot sit on the sideline. We have to help them do that. But again, we also have to demand that they address those things that we know will dramatically undermine all the efforts they do on the public health side of this. So let's talk about public health. Public health has been around for centuries now. Uh, the American Public Health Association, of which you serve as executive director, has been around since uh, 1872. Public health has produced positive society-changing achievements over this last century. And yet, if you ask the average person in America about public health and what it is, they might be a little bit fuzzy. If yeah. you accept the premise there, um, why do you think people are fuzzy about public health in terms of what it is and, and why it's important? And how much does that matter? Well, people, people have not um, connected um, the dots on many of these things. You know, we... we we're human beings and we kind of live for the moment. Um, we know how things are today. Um, we often forget about how things used to be. Um, so I, I often use the example of a, a nice, clean glass of water, um, which almost most of us um, in most parts of the country can simply go to a knob and turn it and water comes out of the faucet. It is clean and safe and usually, usually tastes pretty good. But if you go back um, to the, the old days when the water was brownish and had stuff in it and wasn't very um, healthy for you. Um, in fact, sometimes not safe at all. But we live for the moment. We know what it's like to turn that knob and get that clean water. And we often forget what it used to be like. Vaccines. Um, there was a time when parents would tremble at childhood diseases. And now, because of the advent of vaccines, they're uncommon. And yet, we, of course, you know we still have a huge anti-vaccine um, movement. And that coupled with clinicians who are wonderful, but have never seen the devastation because we've been so successful. Um, so I think the answer is public health needs to do a much better job of telling our story, connecting the dots, making people understand the fact that the water is safe to drink, the air is safe to breathe and the food is safe to eat because of public health interventions um, that were planned, deliberate, thoughtful, and not by accident. Let's talk more about public health achievements. These are, according to the CDC, the greatest public health achievements of the 20th century. You mentioned vaccination, uh, motor vehicle safety, uh, safer workplaces, control of infectious diseases, decline in deaths from coronary heart disease and stroke, safer and healthier foods, healthier mothers and babies, family planning, fluoridation of drinking water, recognition of tobacco use as a health hazard. Those are the achievements of the 20th century. How far along are we in creating the achievements for the 21st? And what will those be? You know, we're just, we're just getting our hands around that. You know, the, the first um, generation of our accomplishment in public health were kind of the environment, sanitation, again, clean air, safe water, safer foods. Um, our initial conquest, quote unquote, of, of uh, infectious diseases, which was the, 
the big killer. And now we're trying to deal with chronic diseases um, and, and, and going back. So obesity, HIV AIDS now, which of course started as a uh, acute killing infectious disease is now in many ways a chronic disease. Alzheimer's, degenerative diseases. We've done a pretty good job on cardiovascular disease and stroke, um, but we're learning a lot more. And so the point is that chronic diseases is probably going to be ultimately the high on that next list. Um, and I think the next generation of how we deal with infectious diseases um, will be on that list. I think climate change. We're, we're not doing what we need to do about that at all. Um, what does climate change have to do with public health? And I'm asking because you know, back um, in Colorado, uh, we're beginning to work on it. And honestly, I get questions like, what does a health organization have to do with climate change? Well, let me just start by saying, if it hurts people, it kills people, it's ours. And climate change is probably the biggest public health threat that we have. It um, results in changes in our ecosystem, in our environment, which makes us more susceptible to various kinds of infectious diseases, particularly vector-borne diseases, things that are carried by mosquitoes in particular, but other things. Severe weather, so heat waves. We just had this big, serious frost we had uh, over the last few days. We had maybe 20-some people died from that. Um, interestingly, some of them very young, um, just because they got caught out in the cold. Mm -hmm. Think about the hurricanes and tornadoes, the number of people that died because of the, the trauma from that or exposures, um, the long-term effects from a mental health perspective, um, when people have lost everything, uh, mold in people's homes, the fact that we now have people who um, used to have a home but now are functionally homeless. Some are leave, living in some of those um, unsanitary conditions because they have no place else to go. They're living in a house with a partial roof, with mold on the walls, um, and so they're being exposed to all the toxins and, and, and problems of, uh, of allergenic exposures to mold. One of the things that happens when the um, CO2 rises is that, yes, you get great growth of plants, and some people think that's wonderful, but you also get really great growth in plants that are allergenic. So you have more asthma, more people who are, are responsive and triggered from bronchospatial disease, you know, former smokers with chronic stroke, pulmonary disease, et cetera, um, have bigger problems. Heat, the heat, um, more heart attacks. Um, cold weather, um, more heart attacks than people out doing the, the shoveling the snow. So it, it, um, it definitely has a health impact. Um, it's not about the polar bears. It, you know, climate change is here. It's affecting our health today, right now, as we speak. And there, there are many things we can do both in the short term and in the long term to try to address it. So the APHA recently hosted a forum titled Public Health Under Siege, Improving Policy in Turbulent Times. That's a stark title. Uh, Why would you use those words, number one? And number two, what does public policy have to do with public health? Well, we, we, um, we wanted to start by, by pointing out the fact that, that public health practitioners do their work through public policy. Um, if you look at the um, um, three core functions of public health, it's assessment, looking at what's going on in the community, policy development, and then assurance, which is not just clinical assurance, but it's also ensuring that your policies are working and the goals you're trying to achieve are being met. Uh, and that's what public health is, and it's always been that way. And yet people are always perplexed when public health people stand up and talk about passing legislation or do, getting involved in policy work or doing advocacy. You know, asking a public health person um, not to do policy is like a, a, asking a lawyer not to go to court. 
Uh, it makes absolutely no sense. That is how we do what we do. Now, we also give people vaccines. We also provide clinical care. But if you think about the vaccine story, um, the goal of giving individual vaccines, we like to protect individuals, but our ultimate real goal in public health is to get enough people vaccinated that we get herd immunity so that we actually get the prevention aspect of vaccines. So we love to vaccinate individual people. We love to protect individuals, of course, that's what we do. Um, but we really, really love uh, to get the herd immunity so we can protect everybody. Um, and that's what we do. That's why we do the work we do. Now, the challenge I think we have in public health is that in many ways, the accomplishments are underappreciated. Uh, the fact that we only spend 3% of our healthcare dollar um, on prevention wellness. And you know everyone talks about medical care, medical care, medical care, but 80% of what makes you healthy occurs outside the doctor's office. Um, and we need to keep beating the drum so that people know that a bigger investment uh, in public health prevention wellness um, is, is essential. So this conference was um, something we're planning on doing annually to try to begin that conversation. You know, as you know, we have a wonderful large annual meeting, 13,000 of your closest friends come. Um, but it's a great scientific conference, but we wanted to be able to have a smaller venue where we could focus like a laser here in the nation's capital on policy, getting elected leaders to come in, policy leaders to come in, their staffs, so we could begin to have a really, really substantive discussion uh, around public health policy. There's some talk of a potential uh, bipartisan agreement on infrastructure investments uh, at the federal level. And uh, President Obama uh, appointed you to um, a National Council on Infrastructure. What does public health have to do with this infrastructure issue? Well, you know, the, um, the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, um, which I do still serve, even you know, under, under, in, under the Trump administration, um, is a wonderful council. It's made up of CEOs um, from a variety of industries. I represent the health industry. Uh, we just put out a recent report that asked the fundamental question, what would happen if a large part of the United States went without power for a long period of time? Now, we, we saw tragically um, a smaller version of that. Not less, not, I don't want to make sure people think it's less significant, but a smaller version of that in Puerto Rico. But imagine that happening for half the country, a third of the country. Um, the capacity to bring that infrastructure back up, we don't really have. Um, thinking about how you prioritize that. Um, right now, um, we know in Puerto Rico, for example, we had thousands of deaths um, from, from that outage and, and the storms and all the things around that. Um, but imagine that we're having the debate about whether we give power up at Hospital A versus the water system. Um, we want to get people renal dialysis. They need their dialysis, but the dialysis is very much dependent on clean water. So do you bring up the water system first or you bring up the power systems for dialysis first? So thinking about how you, how you fix these systems and bring them back up, um, and some of them are intuitive, but some of them are not so intuitive, and thinking about that long-term power outage. The vision of the APHA is to create the healthiest nation in one generation. And um, in recent years, for the past three years, 
life expectancy in America is headed in the wrong direction. What do we need to do in terms of what I presume has to be a dramatic about face um, in improving the health of the nation? Is it a series of incremental steps? Is it a new way of thinking? Is it doing something we're not doing already? How are we going to turn this, this ship around? You know, um, the, the ideology uh, of these, this decrease in life expectancy is, is the opioid epidemic um, and some mental health issues, suicides, um, coupled with some plateauing of the um, improvements, we've dramatic improvements we've had in cardiovascular disease mortality. But I'm going to step back as a public health person and say, if you, if you ask ourselves, you got to ask ourselves how we got into the opioid epidemic in the first place. And it was a total breakdown in our systems. We, we had um, terrible surveillance on um, the utilization of, of opioid drugs. Um, we had a breakdown in many ways in the education of people around what opioids, the risk of opioids was. Um, yes, there were um, pharmaceutical companies that pushed the drug. Um, but doctors who should have known better um, were, were captured as part of that. The fact that we didn't know that millions of pills were going to small communities. We should have known that. By the way, the data was there to do it, but we didn't have a system to grab that together and say, oh my God, we need to do something about this. And then some of the early people that saw this happening um, were kind of shouting at the rain. They try to speak up. I know the CDC director um, spent an early part of, of his time, um, Tom Frieden, telling people, this is coming, this is coming. It's here, it's here. Um, and we responded much too late. So in my view, we need to build a, uh, a system in our country that rapidly identifies when a new health threat has come into the community and has the capacity to rapidly respond. Um, we've taken apart a fair amount of our basic public health systems at the local level. We've underfunded them. Um, we've not rebuilt them after the re recession. Um, we have found all kinds of excuses why we can't do, we can't link data systems. Um, you know, if we ran um, the local grocery store or Amazon or any of these other big companies that rely on data, we know that we can do it, but we haven't done that in health. We haven't done that in public health. And we need to, to um, link these data systems in a way um, that we protect patients' confidentiality, of course, um, but that we rapidly identify risks and, and then have the infrastructure in place, people well-trained with the tools to respond quickly. And so the opioid epidemic is an example of where we failed, and the three-year decrease in life expectancy is the terrible outcome for that. Um, but what are we doing? We're throwing appropriately lots of money at treatment, but we're not fixing the upstream stuff at all. Not, not at all. We, we're, we're doing this in a, in a very siloed approach without a comprehensive plan to really address opioids, nor a comprehensive plan to create the system that we need um, for appropriate health protection. We started by talking about the, the need and difficulty in connecting the dots for people to help them understand public health and, and why it's important. And we've also talked about the need to improve public health from a public policy standpoint. You all have, I think, 25 or 26,000 members 
there are a lot of people in America who professionally work within public health, many of whom are, are public employees. Does public health need a political constituency beyond that cadre of public health employees in order to um, get some of these needed public policies over the hump? Do we need allies or a grassroots constituency to really be able to make progress? Or what's the strategy? You know, the, um, the reason we have such amazing advocacy around cancer and heart disease and diabetes is that they, as organizations, um, have captured the minds of the people afflicted by those, those diseases. And they arm them with the ability to advocate as citizen advocates um, for their own needs and the needs of people in the future. And we need to do a much better job of that in public health and advocating and building an army of people around us um, that can do that. So one of the things we're doing at APHA is building something um, called Generation Public Health. Um, it's a, we, we view this as a large movement to try to engage the average citizen in the, um, in the discussions around public health and giving them the opportunity to engage when we're dealing with something that they care about. Um, so uh, just to give you an example of how that's, that, that works, we, yes, you're right, we have uh, 26,000 individual members, 50,000 if you include all the agency members that are also with us, but we have over 800,000 people that are involved with us in a variety of ways. And that number is growing. And so that obviously is larger than our, our, our paid membership base. Um, but that shows that we are being successful at trying to engage a much broader part of our society um, to speak for health and to empower them to really push for things that they care about uh, in, a, in a broad way. They may or may not understand that they're doing what I would consider public health. Um, but I don't know that that matters. Um, I do matter. It does matter that uh, uh, they're doing things to try to improve the health of the nation. Um, and, you know, one of our, our, our goals in public health, in fact, um, APHA's goal is for this nation to become the healthiest nation. Um, that's not being arrogant, but we are a competitive people. And we know we're not the healthiest despite spending twice as much as the next industrialized nation. And so we think that um, telling people, listen, we want you to be competitive. We want to be healthy. Here are some ways and some steps that you can do to do that. Uh, and to take this growing number of, of people that are in our sphere of influence, if you might, I might say, um, to help us achieve that. Let's talk a little bit about a kind of a fundamental divide politically and a differing approach even in the practice of public health between individual responsibility and or behavior change and the role of public policy. I mean, when I talk to people about public health a lot, if I'm talking to someone who's not within public health, sometimes I encounter objections to public policy that we want to push on the grounds of their view that it's the realm of the individual, not the realm of uh, the government. And even within public health, um, there are some who you know tend to subscribe more to behavior change and behavior change campaigns versus public policy as a means to change systems and, and practices. Um, do you encounter this same divide, and how do you how do you manage to build bridges where possible? Yes, I, I certainly uh, hear that argument, uh, both the individual um, responsibility argument and then the art the societal argument and the truth of the the answer to that is that we have to have both there is absolutely individual responsibility no question about that 
But part of your individual responsibilities would be part of the whole. Um, there is also a, a um, societal responsibility for what we do. Um, and some things just make more sense. Um, so, for example, you know, we all like clean water, but if, boy, darn inconvenient for all of us have to get up every morning and boil our own drinking water, okay, which is why we have societal involvement in um, filtration plants. We pay taxes to get that done because we found out that is a whole lot more efficient and safe for us to do as a collective. Uh, yeah, I would like for everybody to decide that um, smoking is bad for them and they should not smoke. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have an industry which pries on our children. You learn it as a child, you get addicted as a child, or at least a young adult these days. And um, we have an industry that is, frankly, um, uh, geared at making sure, spends millions and millions and millions of dollars making sure that we can get addicted from nicotine, and then all the terrible byproducts of tobacco addiction, um, primarily from combustible tobacco, but now that we have e-cigarettes, it's getting more complicated. Um, and that requires a societal response. You know, there was a time we said that tobacco utilization was an individual choice. But when we now know it's not an individual choice, it is an addiction. Um, your choice to utilize it in the first place was driven by a company which targeted you and marketed to you, if you're a smoker, to use that product. Um, so you didn't have a choice in that. I mean, not really. Um, you may think you had a choice, um, but you were driven um, by, by you know, um, the tobacco company. So um, to level the playing field, we do need policy, and it's a tool. It's not the only tool. You've been in this public health game a while. You're the head of the biggest public health uh, organization in America. What advice uh, would you give to um, young folks who are considering public health as a career or um, folks who are just starting out within the profession of public health? You know, I, I, um, I think health overall is, is a noble profession. Um, and if it, you know, it's something that, that really rocks your boat and something you want to do, I encourage you to do it. Um, I, um, I, I got into medicine and I became a physician. Um, I really fell in love with, I was going into medicine to do research, fell in love with clinical medicine and, um, you know, the, quote unquote, the rest is history. I still miss, miss clinical medicine each and every day. Um, but I, I, I have in many ways found a, a different calling. I won't call it a higher calling, but it's different, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I tell people that find out what you really, really love to do, get very good at doing it, and then do as much of it as you can. And for those people that want a career helping people where the reward is not financial by any means, but the reward is that um, you get up every morning and um, the world's a little brighter because you did something. Um, this, this is a career to be in. And uh, finally, I found out something about you uh, in, in preparing for this interview. Uh, you wrote a book. It's called The Quest for Health Reform. It's a, a satirical history um, that's an expose of the nearly 100-year quest to ensure quality, affordable health coverage for all 
through the use of political cartoons. First, isn't using cartoons that kind of cheating? Uh, and second, what what you know what led you to to uh, write this book? Well, let me let me take on the cartoon question first. So first of all, um, anyone who has seen cartoons, particularly the the one frame cartoons, mm -hmm. which have you know, so much in it. And it turns out one of the things I learned in medical school is that I was very visual. I was a visual learner. If I saw it, I didn't forget it. Uh, I could read it 10 times, I'll finally get it. But if I saw it, I absolutely never forgot it. Um, and cartoons, um, a really good cartoonist, um, can can move you in ways on, a, on an issue that sometimes the words cannot. And these are often opinion cartoonists, which are, who are doing these cartoons. Um, and so during the health reform debate, um, you know, it was I, was, I was fascinated the number of people that didn't know we've been trying to do health reform for over 100 years. Um, you know, but we're about to have another debate on health reform uh, around single payer and this next election cycle, et cetera. Um, and just the false understanding of the fact that Frankly, the, some of the earliest people pushing for universal coverage were Republicans. And we're, the, again, the only industrialized nation in the world that hasn't gotten all of our citizens covered as a right. As a right. Um, having said that, um, this was, um, um, I, I kind of capture these cartoons um, all the time just because I love to read them and find them very informative. And I was on a sabbatical at the Roosevelt House Public Policy Center. Um, I was living in um, the, their public policy center is actually the two townhouses that Franklin Delano Roosevelt's mother had built for he and Eleanor and her mother and herself uh, many years ago before he um, became president. And um, it's a beautiful public policy center. And on the top floor are these two apartments. Um, and I actually for their fellows. And I, so I actually got to live in FDR's house. Um, on East 65th Street between Madison and Park Avenue. Talk about living nice. where I'm the 1%. So it's early in the morning. I have to do a project. I'm downstairs on the third floor in the library of this building. And it's um, the library where FDR thought about the whole social safety net. I'm the only one in the middle of the night. And I'm sitting here saying, where's my project going to be? And it just hit me that I need to do something on Healthy Forum to tell the 100-year story of Healthy Forum. Um, and how do, should I do it through my lens and all this is political cartoons? Um, so the book has a narrative that tells a story. I partner with some other people that are really experts in the, in the, in the history part of it. Um, and we got together and figured out the cartoons, got the rights to these cartoons. We have um, I'm about eight Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonists in the book. Um, so it's a, it's a serious discussion around healthy forms. And I really would like to do kind of a, another uh, portion of this book or do another volume um, around the, the debate that's happened since then. Because there are some great cartoons that have happened since the ACA as well. Dr. Benjamin, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right. Well, I hope you liked that. Thanks again to Dr. Benjamin. And also subscribe if you haven't already and give us a nice rating. Any feedback at all, you can hit us up on Twitter or visit our website, woodenteeshow.com. Until next time. <laughs>